over the moon to talk to uh, Kate today. Many of you will know Kate as um, not only founding director of the Women's Prize, but a prize-winning multi-million um, copy-selling author of the Languedoc trilogy. Of she's a playwright, an essayist. Um, Tired, exhausted. <laughs> 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 the, the wonderful gothic fiction that you've read, um, the Taxidermist Daughter being being the latest, but nine novels so far. Eleven. Now, Eleven yeah. now. Sorry, that was yeah. during the I've break. I've been busy yes. this morning. <laughs> yes, this <laughs> amazing, amazing Walker. Um, but today, not exclusively, because you will all have questions, so we can we can roam across fiction and not and non-fiction. Um, we're going to be talking about An Extra Pair of Hands, which is a beautiful um, part memoir, part biography of her parents, her wonderful, wonderful mother-in-law, Rosie, who I fell in love with. Um, but for me, I, I'm looking after my own mother, and it, I learnt so much from this. Um, but also, as an extra bonus, we get to talk about Warrior Queens and Quiet Revolutionaries, which is out early October the 17th. 13th. 13th. Um, so you'll have cards on your uh, chairs, and we'll be talking about this, which has a fantastic history of coming into being, but also within the pages a fantastic history. So Kate, all, I mean, <laughs> all these amazing things. Uh, where would you like to start? Well, I... I think we should talk about caring and an extra yeah. pair of hands because obviously yeah. that's <laughs> what it says in the programme. <laughs> um, but also I think because just being here in this amazing festival, it's the first time here, as Patrick says, it, you know, it's never quite worked out. But one of the joys about being um, at a festival of this size is that all the authors, we're all together and you can get to talk to friends who you don't see that often necessarily because we don't all live in the same place. Um, and what's so marked is the whole weekend, because of this book, people say, oh, actually, I did this for my father or my mother or my mother-in-law or my sister or whatever. And I think that's the thing that, one of the reasons I wrote the book, it was an enormous decision. It felt like a very big decision to write something so personal because I write big, bish-bash-bosh history books with, you know, a lot of battles and... My dad wants to describe them, sex and swords. Um, and, uh, you know, the more modern ones, it's guns. But, you know, there's still sex if you're interested in that. Um, but, you know, it's, it's very much not me. It's not my history. It's that kind of storytelling. And I was asked to write this book, An Extra Pair of Hands, by the Wellcome Trust. And that's because they were doing a series of uh, books where they were asking non-experts, so not the exceptional Rupert, um, who many of you have just listened to, who is not only an exquisite writer, but is now a doctor. Um, and we met when she was writing. That was how we knew each other. But it's quite rare to find someone who is an expert in the field of health and social policy who can really write mm. in the way that Rupa Faruqi can. So what they were doing with the Wellcome Trust was saying could they would like people who were had lived experience of the health service or of caring or of mental health or any of those things to write their their experiences and my parents are both gone sadly um, so I couldn't ask them but I have been a full-time carer for the past well now five years to my wonderful mother-in-law Granny Rosie she's known throughout Chichester as Granny Rosie um, she's won several awards for her knitting um, because she knits she's raised over the pandemic and before has raised something in the region of eight thousand pounds by knitting little things for the children's hospice um, in, in our local town of, of Chichester. So I could ask Granny Rosie, and I said, what would you feel about me putting our story, because it is essentially mostly Rosie's story, on the page? Um, and if I show everything to you, in anything that you feel is too much, um, I'll take out. And she said, oh, yeah, fine. Um, so I then wrote the book, and there were certain bits that I knew I wasn't going to put on the page. I felt they were private, and my father definitely wouldn't have wanted that, and my mother wouldn't have wanted that. And there were certain incidents, shall we say, with Granny Rosie that I left out. And when she read the book, she said, this is, this is great. She said, but where's this? Where's that? I said, I don't think you'd want that. You know, the moments that, you know, I went to pick some, you know, an award thing up, and Granny Rosie and my mum came, and they behaved utterly in 
um, character that said my mum had told every single person in the restaurant what had just happened, what I'd won. <laughs> and it was uh, my daughter. You know. um, Granny Rosie got overexcited, had a gin and tonic, went to the loo, forgot she was wearing tights, so pulled up her tights and therefore didn't pull up her trousers. Um, so appeared in the hall of the Savoy uh, with her trousers round her ankles. And I thought she wouldn't want me to put that in the book. So you left that out. I think that was one of my finest hours. <laughs> We do have her um, during lockdown and the, the NHS nights we, ha we had then, um, bringing the piano out um, and, and singing a certain song. Well, uh, yes, uh, this was, I mean, within uh, the pandemic, I think for most of us, we had similar experiences and utterly different experiences from one another. And the first bit of the pandemic, um, because we're lucky, we live in a beautiful place, we live in Sussex, and we have a multi-generational household anyway, so we weren't on our own, um, and it was sunny, and it felt like, I think for many of us who have adult children, uh, you never expected them to be living with you full-time again, and, that, and so that was an odd emotion, because on the one hand, you felt very grateful for that, and obviously devastated. We live on a particular street in Chichester where all the doctors live. It's, it's hilarious. It's just, you know, the, the, all of them. I mean, we are real outliers as two writers, <laughs> the scruffy writers on the corner. Um, and so obviously we were in that kind of environment anyway. But the clap for carers was very important. And Granny Rosie, um, she grew up in a tiny village near where we live called Applegram. Uh, she's nearly 92. And she, all of her family were people who worked on the big estates and on the land. And some of the things I learned during lockdown, asking her about her background, all of which I've known, because my husband and I met when we were 15, so I've known Granny Rosie you know, all of my life, really. Um, but I didn't know quite how brutal some of that was. So they all lived um, in cottages that belonged to the estates they worked on. And when they retired, at sometimes 60, sometimes 65, they were homeless, mm. all of them. And Rosie said, yes, I remember, you know, that Aunt Granny Glad, you know, she was moved around from her four children. And in her Granny Rosie's cottage, they, she had a bed. In one of the other brothers, she had a chair by the fire. Mm. And this was a woman in her 80s by the stage. So um, all of this during lockdown, I was learning a lot about family. I was learning about and why Granny Rosie wanted to go out and do something to clap for carers. Because, you know, a huge amount, you know, I spent a lot of time using the NHS over these we're now 14 years of being a carer, first for my dad, and then my mum briefly, and then Granny Rosie. And so she suddenly thought she'd like to go a bit further. So she said to my children, I think we'll take my electric keyboard out to the street. So, so everybody would stand and do the clapping, and then Granny uh, would strike up the band, essentially. Um, because she used to be with my mum. Uh, my mum was on stage with this group two days before she died suddenly. Um, in an entertainment troupe called the Bosom Old Timers. And she used to say, it's not because we're old, you know. Uh, and I would say, you are all really old, though. <laughs> um, she said, but they sang the old time songs. So we'd plug in the electric piano and she would start to do that wartime play list, really. Bye Bye Blackbird, Wish Me Luck as You Wave Me Goodbye. And of course, we'll meet again. Mm -hmm. And word started to get round. <laughs> so by the end uh, of this, there would be all socially distanced, and this was terribly important, but sometimes as many as, well, I, I won't say how many, but hundreds of people <laughs> locally, all just standing all around the streets, listening for this and singing. And then there was this incredible moment when, um, you know, we do, we're just standing in the road, and it is actually a road that cars go along. The road is not shut, you know. And, but we had shut the road by this stage because Granny Rosie was on the corner. And, um, and that was enough. And people would stop or sometimes just weave their way through people. And a car stopped. And uh, a young woman in a nurse's uniform got out. It was very moving. And um, everybody clapped her. And she sang. And a neighbour, a really old man, danced with her. Um, and that was that. And then a couple of days later on Twitter, a girl said to me, that was my mum. <laughs> and then my daughter filmed it and put it on Twitter and then for another week in April 
I was Granny Rose's social secretary, and we did this morning. We did <laughs> Phil and Holly. Um, we did all of this, and the highlight was being on Zoom with Granny Rosie appearing, saying, can they see me? Um, they really can't see you. She said, you're on my deaf side, you know. And, all of this. and then uh, this was, I unplugged my phone, because we were watching this, and one of her friends, who was 97, from the old timers, um, decided to ring during the live interview to say, and we could hear this coming on the answer code, Rosie, you're on the television. <laughs> <laughs> we know we're on the television. Oh dear. And the highlight was um, on a, another show, I can't remember what it was, um, Granny's favourite show is Repair Shop. Yeah. And um, so they got Will from Repair Shop. You know, if you put type Will from Repair Shop, the first question that comes up, is Will married? Um, <laughs> anyway, um, so they got Will from Repair Shop to come on and go, Granny Rosie, you're, we've heard about you, you're absolutely amazing, doing all of these things. And of course, then we have the moment of Granny Rosie at 92 turning to the governor and saying, it's a dishy, isn't it? <laughs> he also can hear you, Rosie. Anyway. <laughs> you can see how you, you fall in love with Granny Rosie on the page. Um, just fantastic. I love Within this, within these amazing stories, and also it's um, the book is a memoir of sorts. You, you take us around your, your place, which is also your childhood place, so you're re-walking mm. those, those, you know, those paths. So it's about you, and you go back to um, it in the present tense, which is wonderful. So you, you are, are that child, but you're also this adult who's doing this caring work. Um, how did you balance the form of it? You, I mean, it's very clear that within this book there's a there's an aim there's information to be had and i've learned a lot from it in terms of being a you know a carer now and again but how did what were the choices you make in the form of it well i tell you should i read a tiny that bit would from be the beginning wonderful. and then because in a way that answers it because it's the thing that is complicated about being a carer and i'm sure many of you are um because you're here <laughs> um but is to understand that it, it is, it's really tough. It's so much less tough for me because I have a husband who's caring with me and my brother-in-law lives with us now and before that nieces and nephews. And so we've, there's always been several pairs of hands even though I'm the main carer. But the key thing is that firstly I wasn't, uh, in all three of my relationships, caring relationships, I've never been caring for somebody who has um, has dementia or Alzheimer's, which I think is a game changer. Um, also, my husband and I are both writers. Now, a woman has a 50-50 chance of being a carer by the time she's 59. And the odds for men are that doesn't happen until a man is 75, which caring organisations think probably means that women care for anybody who needs it. And mostly, not always, but mostly men care for wives. It, it, there are plenty of brilliant men who are carers, but the stats are quite clear on that. But I think the thing that makes a difference is that I love Granny Rosie <laughs> to bits. And I loved my parents, who were amazing and wonderful people. Now, I have a lot of friends who are caring for people who never really cared for them. Um, and who they have a sense of duty or responsibility, or there is no one else. Mm. But I think that is very complicated when you're caring for somebody who did not do their best by you. Whereas I feel I'm repaying a lifetime of, of love. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I really had that in the forefront of my mind all the time, that I'm very lucky as a carer. And I'm just going to read a tiddly bit from the beginning just to give you um, the sense of things. Um, Christmas, 1975. My sisters and I are sitting in the back of our car, our legs touching and the seat scratchy. Streetlights flash by in quiet suburban towns, then we're out into the darkness of country roads in the South Downs. Sleepy after a long day, a visit to my mother's favourite cousin and his wife somewhere in Surrey. Sandwiches for the journey home. Edam cheese, something I've never eaten before. I want to like it, but it doesn't taste of anything and it's the texture of my swimming hat. <laughs> it's winter, and we're wearing flared jeans and striped polo necks itchy at the neck. Beige and mustard yellow, the colours of the 1970s. 
lava lamp prints. <laughs> or maybe not. Memory is a fickle friend, and there were many journeys to relatives for Christmas. But if the image is slightly blurred, I'm certain it's Boxing Day or thereabouts, coming up for six o'clock. We're in our usual places, me behind our mother on the passenger side, my middle sister perched and looking straight ahead, my youngest sister curled up behind our father, a folded coat against the window for a pillow. In a compartment beneath the handbrake, there's a packet of tissues and a metal tin of car sweets, Fox's glacier mix <laughs> and barley sugars, the brittle taste of day trips. I wipe the inside of the glass with my sleeve and ask if the radio can be turned on. A relief. We're just in time for the tail end of the top 20 and the Christmas number one. <laughs> now, in those days before personalised playlists and 24-hour sound, the Radio 1 countdown on a Sunday night was a ritual. One of those things that made girls growing up in villages in Sussex feel connected to something bigger, beyond the realms of our lived experience. And for the fifth week running, it's Queen with Bohemian <laughs> Rhapsody. I've seen the video on top of the pops, and as I listen, the picture of that split screen dividing into boxes, then dividing again and again. Singing along under my breath to words I don't understand, yet relishing the sound of them, the spirit of them, the promise of them. And I'm going to just jump forward. I didn't then realise how exceptional this quiet, ordered childhood was, how ordinary and how precious knowing that I was loved. And because of those many years of being loved unconditionally and supported unconditionally, that what was required some 35 years later would be both possible and a privilege. Thank you. You'd never ask, or one would never ask um, this question about fiction in media, really, I don't know, but with this book in particular and in tandem with the Wellcome Trust, what did you want it to achieve? I wanted it to say that carers are everywhere hidden in plain sight. Most of this audience, probably, has at some moment stepped up. That being a carer doesn't necessarily mean my setup is that everybody lived with us mm. and lives with us. Um, and in many ways that's much easier. If, if that's possible um, because people spend, a lot of people spend every weekend going across the country to talk to someone. And I think that there's a lot of guilt in caring. I wanted very much to say that any of us who does this is doing something good and that every carer feels guilty. Everybody feels that they're not patient enough or they don't, they leave too early or they should go every weekend rather than every other weekend or that people feel guilty if they um, have a relative that needs to go into some kind of facility or caring home, but that might be the right thing. Mm. People feel guiltier for not having people at home, but that might be the wrong thing. And the more people I talk to, this is entirely my story of caring for my wonderful uh, father who had Parkinson's um, and was a, a delight of a man, a wonderful man. And we were able to care for him at home, and he died at home. Um, and we sat there after he died, and we were able to just sit there, you know, for a while or two, um, and that was amazing. Um, my mother died in hospital, but she died very quickly and very unexpectedly, and that was completely shocking. And that was another thing I wanted to, uh, I suppose, say in the book, and we're in this moment of collective national grief, or, you know, people feel differently about what's happened over the last couple of weeks. I was surprised at how upset I felt, actually, um, but I had just the day before become a granny for the first time, so I was quite emotional <laughs> anyway. Um, but I think that one of the things that often people feel they don't understand is that when you lose a parent, if you loved your parents, it doesn't matter that they're 96. Mm. The grief is still terrible. It's expected. It's completely different from the wrongness of losing a child or a sister, although you know, that, that there's the sense that this is the natural order of things, and it is. But it doesn't mean that you don't feel bereaved and lost and very sad. And I still kind of find myself looking up, thinking, you know, I wonder, you know, when my um, father died, he died in 2011, he had a very strong Christian faith. And it, that was wonderfully reassuring. 
and my mother didn't want to have the conversation, but he and I went through, he told me exactly what he wanted for his uh, service, um, exactly the prayers he wanted, the hymns he wanted. Mm. Um, and I had this piece of paper that my mother must have typed, but it just listed everything at the bottom, very typical of him, thank you. Um, <laughs> and, uh, so, and that felt a very wonderful experience. Uh, Parkinson's, for any of you who do care for somebody or know people with Parkinson's, is a very, very ugly illness. Um, and his, his, the physicality of life, his life had become very burdensome to him. So I wouldn't have wanted him not to go. Mm. Um, I, but I still felt him very, very, very close all the time with me, partly, I think, because of his faith. So I would walk up, carry all the places I'd always walked on the Sussex Downs, and I would chatter away, and that would be fine. When my mother died, he vanished too. And that was a very odd experience, because I thought, I'm really quite good at grief, I thought. I'm really very good at coping with being bereaved here. And I hadn't realised that it was because my mother was still there. And once she died, they both kind of went. And it was, I didn't feel their presence in quite the same way. Mm -hmm. And that was really disappointing, <laughs> actually. But I still have Granny Rosie, um, who says, you know, all the time, I still expect to see your mum coming round the corner. I said, I know. Um, and my mum, till the day she died, carried on saying, no, I, d I don't really smoke. <laughs> um, and, you know, it, it was this hilarious thing in our household that you would go round the corner of her, her bit and she'd be like... I don't really... I just hold them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you know, you're 86. We, we, we've been here, you know. Because I, I was... It was in the 60s and 70s. Was, many of you will remember this. Completely different. My sisters and I would get into the car. My mum would go and pick us up. It'd be, you're pushing your way through the smoke. Um, and it was the idea that smoking was good for you, mm -hmm. you know. So um, anyway, that's, that doesn't answer any of the questions you asked. No, but, no, no, you know. but it's perfect. <laughs> and and just, one, uh, just one more observation, really, about this book is, is the way, the thing that really settled with me um, is that it, you think about it now, it's a very obvious thing to say, but to see it in, in the pages was fantastic, that you don't put the illness as the centre thing. Yes, yes, and I think I think the biggest um, lesson that I've learned, um, and other people will have different lessons that you've all learned from your experiences, if you have them, is you have to start to see time completely differently. Everything about the modern world is about efficiency and getting things done quickly, and you know, in a way, being too busy. You know, we kind of relish that, and we see that as a sign of success. That, you know, like, oh, I was so busy, I, I didn't have time to do this, that, and the other. When you're a carer, you have to accept that things take as long as they take. That's it. Mm. So it might be that the getting up in the morning takes 40 minutes. Or it might take an hour. And that level of patience, I learned I was a lot more patient than I realised. Mm. I was quite a patient person. And that was good to know. But with Granny Rosie in particular... The thing that I've had to learn, which is really significant, um, because there's a tipping point with any caring relationship, and all of you will have been there, is that there's a moment at which you, you know that the, your beloved person that you're caring for is looking to the next bit of their journey. That they're not turning their back on being alive, but actually there is a sense that it will be okay mm. when you, however, you know, whatever your faith or none or however you see it, you know, that you go towards the light, as it were. And what I've had to learn with Granny Rosie is she's allowed to be bloody fed up. There's a real temptation when you're caring for somebody. Um, Rosie was a table tennis champion. She used to ride to school on a pony and stable it at her uncle's pub, which was known in Chichester as the Bucket of Blood. So you can imagine <laughs> the nature of that pub. It was not a nice pub. Um, and she, by being very bright, completely worked her way out of her background, you know, managed to train as a teacher and all of this kind of stuff. Um, and she was, you know, very, very physically fit and she's been in a wheelchair for five years and she hates it. She hates it every single day. And what I had to learn was to not go when she said, you know, when she says to me, which she quite often does, I didn't know I was going to wake up this morning. I had to learn to not go, Come on, mm. tra-la-la, the sun's shining, isn't it great? We're going to do this, that, and the other. Because she has the right to feel miserable, mm. if she wants to. You know, and that was a big lesson, because I think there is this kind of 
gene up. And also, I think a lot of people found, and I'm sure Rupert would know these kind of things, but um, that some older people with life-limiting illnesses want to talk about what's meant them, them dying, and others really don't want to. Mm. So my mother did not want to ever talk about her funeral or what would happen. She didn't want to think about it. And I am absolutely convinced that she she had seen decline because mm -hmm. we cared for my father um, and she was not going to do that. And so we were in this very bizarre situation where she had a slight chest infection that had happened many times before. She was a smoker. Um, and she had been to hospital several times and she was always the queen of the ward and she loved the hospital. She felt safe in the hospital. And um, this was no different. There was nothing to say that this day was any different from any others. And I went back to get some things for her and when I got back we were talk they were talking about end of life care and it was like and when I rang people up the next day after she died people argued with me they said she can't have died I saw her on stage on Thursday or as really genuinely happened I put all her Christmas cards in the post mm -hmm. and they had all arrived the morning I was ringing people up to say you know and they contained things like she didn't eat for lunch on Saturday mm -hmm. um, but I I feel that she absolutely, I mean, there's obviously no medical basis for this, but she did not want to decline, mm -hmm. that she wanted to be there as herself and then gone as herself. Mm -hmm. And that was, you know, all of these things, the point of the book is to share some fellow feeling with any of us who are in these same situations or were in these situations, and also the emotions that go with that. The fact that there is a liberation when you suddenly are not caring, truthfully, you're not awake every night and you're not doing all of those things and the fact that every day starts with has the medication been taken has it not you know we know any of us who do this but then also so you feel guilty about feeling liberated that that stopped and then you start to miss it mm -hmm. uh, you know and you may, and that is I think for I discovered that whatever people's personal circumstances many of them the emotions is carers we felt were the same. Mm -hmm. Whatever we were, men or women, wherever we lived, whatever age we were, whatever we had done with our careers. Um, and so I just felt, well, I would, I'd like to share my experience and if that makes other people feel that we're all in it together, then good. And I am really pleased that Granny Rosie had her moment of fame. Because <laughs> she will have many more <laughs> and deserves them. Well, that's, that's what I certainly felt that um, reading it. And I'm not going to leave Granny Rosie, but I'm going to go back to Granny Rosie in terms of um, that event with Clap for Carers being on Twitter and, and everything like that. That another, this next project, Warrior Queens and Quiet Revolutionaries, how did this come about? There was a similar... There was a similar thing, yes. Yeah. So uh, the, th the thing is that this book doesn't come out for three weeks, so, um, but you may pre-order it now, ladies and gentlemen. No, um, but... Um, it was a similar sort of um, trajectory in some respects. So during the lockdown, um, I just did a social media campaign on Twitter because I felt the lockdown, the second one, uh, the third one in January uh, 21, was just so miserable. Um, and I think everybody was losing heart then. Um, and so I just put out on social media, just tell me the name of one woman from history you think should be better known or who you would like to celebrate. Mm. And I did it in a rather naive way. It's the only time this has ever happened to me on social media. I'm not that competent. Um, but I do quite enjoy it. And thousands of people reacted from all over the world, women and men, uh, and just telling me these extraordinary women. They, there was nothing more to it than celebrating incredible people from the past. Now, obviously, all my historical fiction is about putting unheard and underheard women's stories on the page. And I am interested in how history is made. Who makes it? Who decides what it is? And how very easily uh, women's achievements vanish. Now, many of you will know this, but for example, 99% of people who post on Wikipedia, which is the most significant online encyclopedia, are men. Now, it's not that men don't like women. Of course, that, that's just daft. It's never like that. But at the same time, it is about what is seen as history, what is seen as valuable. And the truth was that we've all always shared this worth earth together. Women and men have always done everything together. And what happens is that history is often used to justify persecution or bigotry now. We can see this in countries in the world right now. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Afghanistan, 
before the Taliban went back in in August last year, had the highest percentage of female MPs anywhere in the world. So the idea that this is tradition and this is history and therefore it must be like that is never true. And the cliche that history is written by the victors, that it's a cliche, but it's true for all that. But it's also written with an agenda. And the more you research into history, the more you realize that it's what the real historians, I'm not a historian, I'm just someone curious, uh, is that they, they call it the silence in the archives. And that means that if certain documents, for example, about women's lives or women having children or, or whatever it is, are not considered worth preserving, then they're not in the archive for the next generation to find out about. So it's not simply people ignoring what's there. It's that there is so much less there. And what I, this book is a celebration. There's nearly a thousand women mentioned in the book, some big, some small, not in terms of their physicality, you understand. Um, and it's a very straightforward thing, you know, that the first female doctor, for example, uh, the very first named author in history was a woman, and her Joanna. Um, and so there's a lot of that, and there are lots of fun facts, like I was sharing with wonderful Jasper Ford last night, and I think they're back there, and, um, and uh, Esther and Susie, you know, just my favorite fact, which is it makes complete sense to anybody who's ever had a household, uh, which is that in the 1890s in Boston, a woman was fed up, uh, and she went to the shed in her back garden, and she built dishwasher. <laughs> the first dishwasher was patented in 1893 by Josephine Cochran. Um, so there's a lot of that, but there is a more serious point to it. And the reason that it links with an extra pair of hands is discovering my own hidden family history. So part of the book is my hidden family history, which is discovering pretty much out of the blue during lockdown that my own great-grandmother, a woman called Lily Watson, uh, was in her day a really famous novelist. But yet, she has entirely vanished. You will not find her in any history books, you will not find her in Wikipedia. You know, it was an incredibly tough detective story. Now, many of you will be interested in tracing your family history. And because of lockdown, I, I did a lot of that. And so I, you know, discovered that this long, you know, I, don't, I thought I was an outlier as a writer in a family of mostly vicars. Um, and a few nuns, and uh, a bit of army, obviously, and, mo and then solicitors. You know, very, very straightforward. You know, I sort of like a Jane Austen novel, frankly. <laughs> um, nothing very surprising or unusual. But no, there was this, you know, this extraordinary thing. But that taught me this: that she was a, a middle-class Victorian woman living in a, a very comfortable life in London, a Baptist family, very big Baptist family, had grown up in Yorkshire and then come down to London, and such was her fame as a writer that when her novel, her most famous novel, The Vicar of Blankwate, was published in 1893, um, Gladstone, Prime Minister himself, wrote to the Times saying, it is to be celebrated. <laughs> and I thought, now, if a woman like that can vanish completely, mm. what about everybody else? And it was a real detective story. And the thing that was most um, extraordinary in my detective story uh, was discovering that I found, you know, my second cousin, three weeks before I was delivering the book, <laughs> said, oh, I found a deed box of letters between Lily and her husband. I said, oh, <laughs> wish you'd looked a year ago. <laughs> um, but thank you. Um, and I said, and, and how many letters are there? She said, 500. <laughs> oh, how lovely. Um, and I mean, they were lovely, and I couldn't read a lot of them, I, and I will catalogue them properly one day. But within there, there was a family tree written on, you know, tissue paper, and, you know, that kind of thing. And I looked at it and I thought, this is a very odd family tree because I was seeing names that weren't there. And then I realized that all the names were male. And then there was this odd code with, in written in handwriting, a red H and a green C. And at that moment, I discovered that my whole family were sufferers, all the men were hemophiliacs. And oh. many had, of them had died. And I found a letter from my great-grandmother who had sat and had to watch her 12-year-old son over three days bleed to death. And I said to another one of my cousins, I said, I just discovered this. And, and Anne, who's older than me, because in the family, Lily's children were over a 20-year period. And I come from the youngest, mm -hmm. um, Betty. Um, and the oldest was you know, 20 years before that. So we're all at slightly different ages. My cousin Anne, who's in her 80s now. And she said, oh, no, my mum was tested and so was I. So how did, how did I not know this? Mm. So it, it, that's the, you know, for me, that is the joy of history, that history is about all of us. It's 
almost the only women that appear in history books are queens or the wives and mistresses of queens. And then a little bit later, obviously, you start to get um, suffragettes and you start to get the first woman to do this and the first woman to do that. But all of us are making history. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the joys for me about the book, you know, tracing this. And like the, the book starts in the Lake District um, when I am at my granny's grave and I knew that this particular place was so dear to them, uh, the Newlands Valley, uh, Stairmore. And I, the only thing I did know about that was that my granny was friends with Beatrix Potter because I have all of the books that she gave to my granny, the original first editions of these books. And then I said, oh, well, of course, because I recognise that view in Mrs. Tickywinkle, because that is the house, isn't it? Um, and, but it was very interesting doing all of those things, starting to understand why that place was so important to my father. And um, the final bit of family history was my husband Greg is teaching a master class writing round, the, round in the barn. And he has his first novel coming out, having supported other writers all of his career. And his first novel is coming out in November. And he first came on a family holiday with us when we were 15. <laughs> and it was a really big thing, my parents let, letting him come. And he walked up Causey Pike um, in the Northwest Lakes with my dad. It was my dad's favorite walk. And it actually was the last time my dad ever did that walk. And we stayed there. And uh, the people who owned the mill then, um, it's the advantage about being a writer and being a bit visible. So they got in touch and they brought all these photographs and all the rest of it. And when Greg and I met them at the tiny church uh, where you know, my granny first went when she was in 1901, um, it was very sweet. Uh, Peter and Jackie, who I hadn't seen since 1977, uh, arrived and said to Greg, we still have a pair of your socks. <laughs> <laughs> so there we are. <laughs> and you, you talk about um, women that you've discovered through the, this process. Um, you know, that obviously inspired, but also you used the word, I think, horrified. You know, who are some of, some of these women? Well, I mean, th this is a really big issue. If you're uh, someone who's, whose kind of project, I suppose, across the years has been uh, women's history and uh, women's voices being heard on an equal basis with male voices, not instead of, but equal, um, it's, there is a really big debate at the heart of this because, of course, the temptation is to only include women that you, you agree with, essentially, mm -hmm. or you approve of. But for history to be genuine and true, you need to put everybody back. And that will mean that you put people back that have views that you really dislike. Mm -hmm. You know, so there are, I'm not gonna name any of those people, actually, because I'm very, but they are in the book. So, you know, for example, obviously, there, well, there, there, there is a, an extraordinary uh, Chinese, uh, uh, the only emperor who was a woman called Wu Tan, And, um, you know, she basically just killed everybody. Mm -hmm. You know, she killed her husband, she killed her son, she put one son on the front. I mean, she, she just, she, she was a, a butcher um, mm -hmm. across everything. She was also the most powerful woman in, in the world at that moment. There are other people in the 19th and 20th century who were incredibly important for women's health, but their views on race and eugenics are, are appalling. Mm -hmm. But... So the only way you can do that in a book like this is to say there are views that many I find troubling and many other people would. The thing that was interesting for me with my great-grandmother, with Lily, um, was discovering that she was part of the anti-suffrage movement. It wasn't just she didn't have a view. She went to anti-suffrage meetings. And that was interesting because I then, you know, it, there's a certain moment where you almost don't want to put that on the page. And then you have to stop and say, Women's place in history cannot be about likability. Mm -hmm. That's not history. You know, mm -hmm. you, know, we, uh, you know, one of the most famous people in history was, I suppose, Henry VIII. Well, that man was a violent misogynist. I mean, he was not a nice person, but he is, you know, good King Henry. So that, that w that's an important thing in the book, is actually putting all of the women back. And also the women that... Um, the thing for me that was very important was the one-woman narrative. Now, what I mean by that is the idea that most women just did embroidery. Mm -hmm. You know, whatever period of history, whatever country in the world, and it's a very global book. There's, um, you know, you know, wherever you are, that you know, women in the past just sat around doing embroidery, um, except for the one exceptional woman. You know, Queen Elizabeth wasn't a woman because she did this. Joan of Arc wasn't really a woman because you know she did that. 
And that was very important to me. To, although there are lots of firsts, so the first woman to do that, the first woman doctor in Latin America, the first, you know, all of those things, they are there. But it's also change and equality. And I'm still an idealist about, you know, as my parents brought me up to believe that you try and leave the world better than when you found it. Mm. And that it is part of your responsibility to do things for other, you know, that, that for them that was a Christian framework and, you know, other people will have a different framework for that. But I still think that we can make the world better, despite so much evidence to the contrary. And we are in that moment of the pendulum swinging. Mm. Um, but, you know, th that's how it goes. But in terms of the way that you um, write the narrative, it's not just the one woman that does something first and for the first time. It's the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth that makes it possible for the hundredth and the one thousandth. And there's never just one woman doing it. And the example I would give of that is, um, some of you may know this. Now, Rosa Parks is an extraordinary woman. And you all know the story of the, you know, Alabama and Montgomery and, uh, you know, all of those things. And that she said many, many times she wasn't particularly angry on that day. She just was tired. Mm. Now, there have been many freedom riders before that, but in particular, Claudette Colvin, but she was a 15-year-old unmarried pregnant girl and she was not seen as an appropriate test case mm. now rosa parks was an extremely accomplished woman great legal training worked for the nnacp so she was the right person paulie murray i don't know how many of you know paulie murray the most extraordinary woman um woman of color uh, she was she described herself as somebody who was in between she'd probably be called a trans woman or a trans man or non-binary now, but these, that language didn't exist then. Uh, she was the first black Episcopalian priest much later in her life. Uh, she had been arrested several times before, but again, they didn't think she was the right person mm. to do the case. So it's not that Rosa Parks isn't incredibly significant, she is, but in every time you see a Rosa Parks, Parks ask yourself about all the others. And that for me is very important in the book. So putting those firsts in there, mm. but also telling the rest of the story, which is all the other women um, that had trod that path. You know, th this is a tribute to the women in whose footsteps we walk, because I genuinely believe that if we have a fairer society between men and women, and indeed between people of different races and different uh, physical abilities and all of those things, that everybody benefits, I think. And mm. it's then, it's, you know, we know this. Um, you know, l l let's look at Iran at the moment. There are incredibly brave women out on the streets at the moment, and there are incredibly, their fathers and brothers and sons are with them too. It's a group of maniacs who are in charge. They don't represent anybody, but their very narrow point of view. So for me, with the idealism of history is, the more you can say, yeah, you think that it, that's the one story then, but it never was. It's why when I'm writing about the Second World War, I never talk about Germany. I talk about Nazi. Mm -hmm. because there was a huge resistance within Germany, but that gets forgotten too. Mm -hmm. So th it's that. The strap line for the book is history completed. Mm -hmm. And that's, <laughs> you know, what we're trying to do. <laughs> Brilliant. How fantastic. Now, I'm going to give a lot of time for questions. Um, and there will be a mic going around. So if you'd like to put your hand up so we can get the mic to you as soon as possible. So <laughs> could, uh, could I just ask that people wait until the microphone gets there yes. so, so everybody at the back can hear? Thank you. So there's um, a lady in the front, the front row here, two people on the front row, and then the front row at the other end. That's oh, what you want, a brave front row. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> interesting can you hear me no, okay um how did you decide which women to leave out of your oh. <laughs> yes i mean there are nearly a thousand women mentioned by name some really just a quotation and others with longer portraits and there are many books like this you know mine is only personal to me and what i hope is going to happen is that everybody will join in so everybody will start saying to me, Kate, you've left this person out, you've let that person out. That is what's going to happen. For me, it was a mixture of things. It was partly my own interests, 
and it was but mostly informed by uh, the social media campaign so for example um, Adam Kay that was uh, who was mentioned in the previous session he suggested Rodice who was you know thought to be the first female doctor um, might or might not have been um, Claire Balding suggested Lily Parr who is the only woman in the UK to have it's the only female footballer to have a statue to her name but was the, a superstar in her day and then recently we're getting back to the, the where it was in 1918 it's another example so I was very guided Richard Osman suggested the Chinese poet Ding Ling now I didn't know Lily Pao and I didn't know Ding Ling so um, I used those recommendations and they really were thousands as the basis and then I started to make a decision about I wanted it to be there are more women from the British Isles and North America and South Africa and the Commonwealth, I suppose, in the old days, you'd say. Um, because I only speak English and French, so I'm reliant on um, other people's research in lots of areas. But then I did want to make sure that there were women from Chile and from Botswana and from, you know, from Russia and from Ukraine and all over the world. So then I would go in search to see if I could find... And, of course, what I discovered is that the, the minute you go to certain parts of the world, you get certain sorts of people. So the minute you, know, you go to the former Soviet Union and all of those independent countries, because they always were independent until that moment, you start to get explorers, uh, for example, because that's what's valued. So they have been recorded more. Whereas in other countries, you get you know, cooks, for example. Mm. Um, so one of the, my favorites that came out of just thinking, I really want to make sure that I can be as global as possible, was... Um, a, a medieval princess, 13th century princess, Mongolian princess called Kutulu, um, who had the biggest herd of horses that it was ever seen. Um, and she was a great granddaughter of Kublai Khan, uh, Genghis Khan. And her story, a real person, was the inspiration for Turandot. And so I, it was that. It, it's almost like having a loose thread on a jumper and you pull it and you end up with just a long thread in the jumper. Um, so it was... It's, it's partial, it's partial, but there's a lot of great women in here. And the only thing, I've, rec I've recorded the audiobook for my books, and then the wonderful actress, Jade Anuka, is recording the rest, and I saw her and she said, I, I should strangle you. And I said, <laughs> I know. She said, some of these names, and nobody knows how to say some of the names, of First course. Nation names. Yeah. Trying to find somebody who could tell you how to pronounce a First Nation name from 900. Mm -hmm. Nobody really knows, that's, mm -hmm. that's the thing, because of course there's no phonetic, you know, but it's, it's been wonderful. You know, I feel like I've just scratched the surface. <laughs> Thank you. And then the gentleman at the end here. How does it feel to be writing about yourself a lot more in, in the recent books and also talking to people? Is it different? Do you get a different response than your fiction? That's a lovely question. Um, I thought you were going to say, how does it feel to talk? And truth, I like it. <laughs> so I'm all right doing the talking. Um, it does feel different. But at the same time, I don't think my fiction and non-fiction is so different in tone and style, really. Because even though I write what would probably be called commercial fiction, I still care about every sentence and I care about the ideas behind it. And it's true that I write fiction that I want people to go, you know, it's far, you know, that there is a momentum as you read because you're going to that moment when, you know, everything's going to be on fire or it's all going to be flooded or everybody's going to die. You know, that, that's, that's the sort of fiction. It's not um, what I always think of. I, I hate the distinction of literary fiction because I think that does that type of way. But I think it's what I think of as exquisite fiction where the beauty of the language and the pace of it is very different from something that is essentially an adventure story. But I think, you know, particularly with my novel Citadel, for example, which is set in the Second World War, the inspiration for that is a memorial in Carcassonne in the southwest of France. I write about there often. And um, noticing all the street signs were, um, had been renamed in the, the heart of the Bastille through, through the modern time, 14th century modern time, um, that all of the streets in the centre had been renamed for resistance fighters from the Carcassonne resistance and noticing something really unusual, namely that the date of death for all of them was the same. And that's very rare. 
And so then doing a bit of research and discovering that the whole Carcassonne resistance had been betrayed, of course. By the end, this 1944, by the end of the war, the resist all of the people in the resistance were very young. You know, the liberation of those places was in the hands of teenagers, mostly, because everybody else had been um, imprisoned or, or executed by then. And they were executed in, in a really bizarre way, and which I, I will go into. So they, they'd all been captured and they're taken to a place outside of Carcassonne. And rather than be shot, for reasons that nobody has ever been able to understand, uh, because the Nazis, the SD and the SS withdrew the next day, uh, they were executed by hanging hand grenades put in their mouths. So they were blown up quite deliberately. Now that's an extraordinary act of spite. But what then happened is over the years, they managed to work out who died that day. So the, the memorial has the name of all the men there. And there's a line at the bottom which still turns my heart over when you read it. And it simply says at the bottom, and two unknown women. And there are these extraordinary portrait pic photographs of uh, on the 20th of August, 1944, the day after <coughs> the withdrawal and the day after the executions, of all of the Mackies, so the kind of guerrilla forces and the resistance coming down from the hills and walking down the, a big boulevard um, in Carcassonne. And for me, I, s I just thought, what would it have been like to be a parent or a sister or a lover or a child looking desperately in the crowd? to see if your child or husband or wife was amongst these people. Now, that's, it sounds like I'm not answering your question at all. The point is um, that I nearly wrote a non-fiction book about that mm. because that's that history. And in the end, I thought, I will never find out who those women are because French historians have not been able to do that. But I. As a novelist, I know the kind of women they must have been and the kind of men and women who must have known and loved them. And so I wrote that story and I knew the lead character would be one of those two women. But truthfully, it wasn't till I was writing that scene that I realized who was next to her. And it was just heartbreaking. <laughs> and it was like, oh no, I didn't really want it to be you who went. So for me, although this is personal because there's my family story, and particularly in an extra pair of hands, that is me being me. I feel I'm always very deeply myself in my books, and I find the process of writing very personal. More questions? Yes. <laughs> the gentleman at the back in the purple shirt. <laughs> Is that a director's privilege? <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is, totally. I told you she was special. Um, Kate, you are so um, eloquent and uh, energising about your subjects. I'm really hoping that your agent has sold television rights for a series about this new book. Um, mm. Well, we have reason to hope? There are two things. Funnily enough, um, we've had several... Um, th this is... It's very interesting. I feel very perky. Um, but I am nearly 61, um, and we had several offers, television offers, um, but only with a younger presenter. So we haven't sold. What we have done, however, is um, I am starting a new career next year, and I am starting a one-woman show. And what? I am doing a theatre tour in the, uh, the spring um, of 40 venues, theatres, um, and then another one in the autumn, ending up in the West End. So, I do come. Um, <laughs> so, that's what we're doing. <laughs> you know, so lights and music and stuff. I'm not entirely sure what the show's going to be yet. Um, but a producer just approached us, and we were having this bizarre thing, like, no, we love this, we love Kate, but, you know, we just think, you know, may maybe somebody's a bit better known on screen. I thought, well... Frankly, if you don't think I'm well enough known at 60, then mm. I, I'm not, you know, I, I didn't want to give this to somebody else, actually. But this will be fun, uh, doing a theatre tour. It'll be quite knackering. And we're already having a debate about Granny, you know, because that's the thing. Because I, I did say to her, Rosie, what would you feel if I did this? And she said, you should definitely do it. 
but that does that does feel mm -hmm. you know so I, I've got a schedule that has built in me being home you know going to do three dates and then coming home then doing another three dates and then coming home so that I'm not going to be on the road for, for six weeks obviously I, c I can't possibly be but um, I think it would be fun <laughs> and are you working on the content now well I'm due to deliver my next novel at the end of November and that is obviously going to be late um, right. so <laughs> I'm trying because I'm swanning around at literary festivals now. Um, so I, I really have got to finish that novel. Right. That's basically, if anybody's interested, it's going to be called The Ghost Ship. It's the next one in the Schubert trilogy, um, not a trilogy, but it's now a quartet. It's basically lesbian pirates. That's all you need to know. Um, well, that sounds marvellous. <laughs> and so, yes. Lady at the back there. Do you want to wait for the microphone? That'd be great. Can you please come to the Hall for Cornwall? I think I might be, because actually. otherwise we <laughs> have a long way to get to see you. Yeah, I, I mean... And I it's a lovely, lovely theatre. <laughs> well, it's not up to me, but I, I do... I think that there is a Cornwall date, actually. Um, I mean, it is very much um, all over the country. I mean, because that's kind of the point, because it's that dark thing, isn't it? The idea that readers live everywhere. You know, I don't live in London, um, and lots of people do live in London, but lots of people live in other places. <laughs> so let's go there too. So I, hopefully, I'll, I'll check that when I get home. <laughs> With Granny Rosie. Well, Whoa. the thing is, I have tried to persuade Granny Rosie to either write her life history or let me do it. Um, because some of the stories in the book, they are, it, it is an England that has almost all gone now. Mm. That kind of, you know, she did in order to be able to afford to go to teacher training college and she passed the 11 plus and so were, you know was kind of going through at school and things she worked you know um worked in the fields to earn money and when she was doing teacher training you know she went to county hall in chichester every day and was sent anywhere within the district so and she went on a bicycle it could have been 10 miles up, up through the downs and i just think there was a book when i was a publisher years ago in the 80s um a woman called Hannah Hawkeswell. Yeah, do you remember? <laughs> now, Granny Rosie is Hannah Hawkeswell, really, in a way. Um, that kind of old English life, um, of Sussex life, of generation after generation going back. Um, and I just think when she goes, that will be lost. And I've done everything. I've got her recording, you know, tape recorder. Um, and you know what she did with the tape recorder? Mm. This is a perfect note. This, this sums up Granny Rosie absolutely perfectly. So... We have obviously talked about her funeral. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I sit at one end of the table with a glass of white wine, and Granny Rosie sits at the other end with a gin and tonic. Um, and her phrase is always, is the sun over the yard arm? And I would always say it's over the yard arm somewhere. <laughs> and uh, she will have a gin and tonic, uh, which might or might not be her first day if uh, <laughs> lunchtime. Um, and we talked about all of this. So I then bought her, um, we, we managed to find an old cassette recorder and a tape, because we thought, you know, that would be fine. So I gave it to her and I said, just when you, you know, if you wake up in the night, just record yourself and I will transcribe it all down. Because the minute we start talking, she's got all these stories and they're extraordinary, but it makes her self-conscious. Mm. So then I said, have you recorded something? She said, yes. I said, what have you recorded? She said, my walkout music for the funeral. <laughs> I said, what have you done? So she had recorded herself singing and playing, wish me luck as you wave me goodbye. <laughs> And she said, that is what I would like played um, after my cremation. And I said, okay. And then I got a friend to come around and record her properly because she had not really pressed play. Um, so anyway, so I, I still live in hope of Granny Rosie, you know, the life and times of Granny Rosie um, being out there. I think it would, it would sweep up. Definitely. I know. She's extraordinary. I, I fear, though we could listen to Tiffany and Kate all morning, we are running out of time. And I'm very aware that Kate and Greg have to be all the way back in Sussex for an event at six o'clock. Well, that's because mm. Granny Rosie's so going to a birthday party. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I am not joking. She's due there at six o'clock. So. <laughs> but please, um, before you thank Kate and Tiffany, I would like you to, in your heads, thank Savills, mm. who very generously made this event possible and brought... Kate down here. We do love our sponsors and Kate, we love you and we think <laughs> we love you. And please let Kate escape to the bookshop. Don't mob her in here. 
when she's in the bookshop and you've got there, you can not only buy uh, the caring book, Pair of Hands, but you can pre-order Warrior Queens. So yes, thank you. Pre-orders are very, very welcome. They're often the best way of getting an author onto the bestseller list, as I know to my cost. So <laughs> please, <laughs> please thank Kate and Tiffany. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.